Hi, Peter. Hey, Liz. So good to see you. Likewise. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty, pretty good. It's been a while, right? It's been maybe over a month since we last talked. It has been a minute. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, but I'm doing well. You know, it's, uh, it's cold here in San Francisco, but it looks like it's a very sunny day. I mean, so, quote unquote, that's cold good. here in San Francisco. <laughs> That's right. That's like that's an important qualifier, especially when I'm talking to someone in Michigan. Yes. Yes. What's um, what's the weather like there today? Oh, today is warmer. The high today was in the is 41. Uh, but okay. we are plummeting after this. You remember that? I of remember those here? days with yeah. a lot of fondness. We're getting to those days when soon the highs will not be higher than 30. So mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. next week though. Next week. Yeah, and then many months later, when it hits 40 again, you'll be like, oh, it's short weather. Exactly, Let's exactly. run out and frolic. <laughs> no jacket. That's exactly what's going to happen. Um, so not to like date this podcast too much, but you and I are recording um, in that beautiful month between Christmas or no, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, full holiday nonsense. But I'm curious, to, um, you know, I've been reflecting on my own experiences of Christmas and Advent and like yeah. how that, how that's changed for me over the course yeah. of my journey. And so I'm mm. curious for you, like what do Advent and Christmas mean to you at this point in your spiritual life? I, I guess what comes to mind for me immediately is Christmas's past. As mm. I think about um, Christmas just around the corner, mm-hmm. I think about <clears throat> all the ways in which this season was consumed by church for me. Mm. Like I grew up as a PK, which for those wow. who don't know, it just means a uh, pastor's kid. Mm-hmm. And especially this time of year. And I just remember thinking, oh, I hate being at church all the time. And I wasn't really that kid. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't the rebellious PK, at least for most of my, my, um, <clears throat> my early years. But especially around this time, it was always, there was always some sense of, um, remorse, uh, mm. some sadness, uh, wishing that we could have spent more time together as a family. Mm. Looking back now, I see uh, maybe it was just, you know, uh, lack of gratitude because it was, you know, like being around church family or lots of people. Mm. There was a joyous mood to it. But I, I would, I think, um, so that helps to explain I think my the pendulum has swung in the other direction as I think about Christmas. Like I want it to be deeply uh, personal and family oriented, mm-hmm. and so I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to you know we're thinking about all the ways to make it special for our kids and to build memories and to um, to build new traditions and things like that. Um, but even before we get to Christmas, I just I love Advent. I love mm-hmm. the fact that we we are instructed to carve out time to prepare for Christmas. We don't just wake up one, well, for some people, you know, our kids, they'll wake up one morning, it'll be Christmas, right? But <laughs> yeah. there's this spiritual work that you do to walk through Advent and to, mm. uh, to prepare, to wait. And so the season of waiting, the season of anticipation, um, I think has been a good spiritual exercise for me. And I'm glad to engage it again um, mm. this year. Yeah. Can I ask you, what, what does it bring up for you? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I feel like this year in particular, I think in light of what the last few years have been like, I just feel an overwhelming amount of gratitude for community. And I really appreciate that this 
month in particular just provides so many opportunities to be intentional about community, you know, with our immediate family, with our friends, with extended family. And I just, I just feel, yeah, an overwhelming amount of gratitude this year in compared in comparison to other years. I love um, that. That's so beautiful that you can see oh. that and that you're experiencing <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm still sorting out like what Christmas means and like how that's going to hit. I still feel like I'm st I'm still working that out at this point in my journey, but Okay. Um, You're I taking the theological turn. I'm I'm glad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing this. Say more about this. What what are your um yeah, what are your thoughts around that? I just feel I mean I did not grow up with Christmas as a as a religious holiday, right? It was an American holiday. My parents celebrate Christmas because it's what Americans do, right? So, and then, you know, when I, when I became a Christian as a teenager, I feel like it got, had this like new specific spiritual dimension to it. And now, you know, in my like, in my deconstruction, reconstruction journey, et cetera, I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to piece together like what this all, what, what this all means to me, you know? Um, you know, the fact that like Jesus probably was not born in the winter and like, <laughs> and you know, what does, what does, what the birth of Jesus means, I feel like is always evolving for me. So, um, I do not feel like I've had a ton of time to reflect on that, but in the meantime, I'm very much appreciating the communal aspects of the holiday. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's that's going to take work too, but also it's nice to have some, it's nice to have good margin and uh, a sense of joy as you think about that. that yeah. Theology, that robust theological work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and like never ending, right? Like the birth of Jesus, like it, it, it's always, I feel like at this point in my life, it's always evolving, right? So every year we get to engage in this practice of reflecting on what it means. So, yeah. Um, okay, just to kind of transition us into our like official topic for today. Um, this month is focusing on the outward journey. So we've spent some time in the last few months reflecting on the inward journey. And this month is specifically reflecting on the outward. And um, among the pieces that you've selected for this month for the reading, um, you chose two pieces, one by James Cohn and one by Dolores Williams that highlight the chasm that can exist between people's ideas and beliefs and their actions. And I really love these pieces, but before we dig into them, I'm curious to hear about why, why you chose these pieces for this month or what it, what it was about these that you wanted uh, the community to read. Mm -hmm. I think the big idea for the month as we think about the outward journey is think about the people that you're gonna encounter and the kinds of conversations that might be had as you move outward. And it means um, hopefully hearing from voices that you're not accustomed to hearing. And mm. so these are voices that maybe have become more familiar in the recent period of my life, but not growing up and not during the, like, the period of my formal uh, studies in theology and history and things like that. So for me to discover James Cone five years ago, maybe, maybe a little longer ago. And then Dolores Williams shortly after that, 
that's just been a, a um, and so I don't want to transfer my experience. I know there's lots of people listening, lots of people in our community who have grown up on these texts are mm-hmm. deeply familiar and I need to you know, open up my mind to, to learn from them too. Um, but I think for me as a novice, as a recent convert or someone that has come to this material uh, more recently, uh, I guess maybe I have the, the zeal of a, of a recent convert. And so I want others <laughs> to hear and read uh, these pieces. And the Williams piece, I mean, she wrote that in the early 1990s. And I just think about how salient, how mm. uh, relevant that piece is for yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, kind of sad, but also speaks to its enduring power that she yeah. was perceiving these things and addressing these things um, way back then. Yeah. I really appreciate, um, I really, it could have been written this year. So for better and for worse. And that, I mean, let's, let's, let's start with her piece. I really resonated with her discussion of theory versus practice in particular. I feel like this is an issue across academia, um, which I know you and I have both experienced in our extensive time there, like these ideas that never translate into meaningful action. And also that there is often no clear bridge to turn academic ideas and papers and theories into action. And it's also like a huge gripe that I have with theology in particular. So I went to seminary, but unlike many people at my seminary, I was there studying to become a therapist. And I had to take theology classes as part of my degree program. But I just remember sitting in some of these theology classes and just being like, what does this matter? right? Like, especially like being in these Old Testament classes, like people are really getting into the weeds of like, some very small interpretive difference and just being like, what is the point of this conversation? And obviously, this reflects my own entry point into seminary, I did not get into it for the philosophical discussion, I got into it because I was trying to be a therapist, right? But um, I'm curious, in your experience with like theology, and also with academia, like, how have you experienced this, this, like, this huge gap between theory and practice. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important for those of us who are in it to take a step back and to, um, to gaze upon it from the outside. And sometimes hearing about the experience of someone like you who came into it from the outside, didn't grow up thinking about it, didn't go to school in with a particular desire to study these topics, but it was kind of thrust upon you to think about because theology, it's such a, I mean, in many ways, it's the sort of the, the mother of all uh, fields of study and, mm. and all of the various branches of knowledge. And historically, there's an important sort of debt that we uh, owe to that, um, that long, illustrious history. On the other hand, if you, I mean, my theologian friends hate it when I, when I talk about theology this way, because they have a much more nuanced than I think insightful understanding of their craft and their discipline. But for me, theology is just uh, basically uh, people who are presumed expert because of their social location. This is not across the board, for, but for much of Western theology, people who are presumed experts because of their social location, uh, talking about their opinions about God and truth mm-hmm. and the world cosmology, you know, making up these kind of highfalutin words and categories to make sense. And maybe it was enjoyable for them, meaningful for them. But it's so hard to uh, to find 
relevance across time and space. And I think that's the work that hasn't happened. And so it becomes this very speculative, uh, philosophical, philosophers will hate me using that word in that way, you know, mm-hmm. but again, like it becomes this, it's, it's an act of speculation. Mm-hmm. You're just theorizing to use the word that Dolores um, Williams uses in her piece. You're just theorizing based on your own perspective and on your own experience. And so a really concrete experience I had just this past week is we had someone, we had a faith and justice conversation at City Church at San Francisco, and we had Isaiah Young, who's a practical theologian and professor of Christian spirituality. And he actually introduced himself that way. And I was talking with someone just like a couple of days afterwards, maybe yesterday or two days ago. And they were like, when he said that, I thought, shouldn't all theology be practical? Mm. Isn't that redundant to say? Mm. What does it mean that that's a very specific (laughs) subset of theology? And I found that to be a really perceptive comment. That is. Because I, I mean, and we know this because we've been to seminary. And again, maybe this is not a popular thing to say, but amongst the various um, divisions or, or departments of theological studies, practical theology is oftentimes looked down upon as less rigorous academically. Yes. yes. And so there the is a kind of hierarchy. Branch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, those are some of the thoughts that come to mind um, when you bring up that question about Williams, Dolores Williams. Um, trying to unpack theory and the ways in which academia is so theory um, laden. Yeah, yeah. And I really appreciated her point too, that like feminists like are ostensibly trying to push for change, right? Like trying to push against this, like these systems and structures that were built for and by white men. But then her just like very keen observation that often feminists are working within the structures that men created instead of trying to subvert them, which is in its own way, like a tacit acceptance of these structures, I thought was like really perceptive. And, you know, I I really appreciated the idea, just the idea that like, if it's not based in action, like it's all pretty meaningless. Um, If I were to like very crudely distill all of her insights into like a quick pithy sentence. I really liked the idea that she had about like resistance rituals to ground us in action, right? And in our lived experiences and to keep us from just like, you know, keeping that conversation just in the theoretical and the abstract. But I found myself wishing I I knew, like wishing I had a better sense of like what she might be talking about. I wished that she had some examples Like, ironically, I felt like her discussion of resistance rituals was kind of theoretical in its own way. So um, I really appreciated the question that you posed in the um, online forum around, like, what ritual resistance and common action look like? And I'm curious to hear from you, like, what do you feel like they they look like for us as a community or for you individually? I want want to... um hear your thoughts on this too, because I think that that, that's part of what what Dolores Williams is getting at is we have to get out of the mode of somebody who is deemed the expert um, being able to offer all of these points of wisdom and knowledge and everyone else is taking notes Mm -hmm. and supposedly putting them into action. But of course, we know that that's not happening. Mm -hmm. And so what I think what my reading of her is that this has to be worked out. And this is a theme, I guess. 
and maybe um, for people who've been listening for a while, they might be um, a little weary of this, but this is all stuff that needs to get worked out in community. Absolutely. Uh, what does it mean to to do this work in the context of your place, of your city, of your community, and the people that you're in relationship with? So that's, um, that's what comes to mind. Um, Oh, I think uh, so. Oftentimes, we're thinking about po- like adding positive knowledge to our our bank of wisdom, and I think what she might be saying here is, we don't know. There's questions that we are posing that we don't know, and instead of immediately going to an answer, what would it look like for us to sit in the cloud of unknowing to mm. use that? language of the i think it's the 14th century mystic to to remain there not think of it as a um as a an interim point or a a waypoint along the journey but to really make that your destination um for now Mm. and again even saying for now it seems like well then then tomorrow or later you get to move on to something else no i mean like in the now is all that we have yeah and um, like, how do I show up in this moment? What am I smelling? What am I, what am I touching? Who, you know, who are the people immediately in my vicinity that I am called to love, to arrange my life around, to spend time and money and energy on uh, and with all of those things uh, coming to bear on, on this question? Um, and I would imagine every day looks different. And so there's probably patterns that emerge, but it's really thinking about how do I, yeah. And, and how do I, how do I not, not try to like wax eloquent and talk at length about a question I don't know the answer to, which yes. is about exactly what I'm doing now. Right. Yeah. So like, how do we just <laughs> cultivate other habits? Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the like stance of humility that I feel like that requires. Um, a willingness to acknowledge that you don't know and that the answer could change. And I also just kind of in the kind of the totality of what you're saying, like I, um, that what you said about like this work needing to be done in community is so critical and also like in a diverse community as, as diverse as possible. Right. Because if you are just waxing eloquent with a bunch of people who think exactly like you and also enjoy these things, like that's a fun exercise, but like, I feel like you, you need to be with people with other vantage points who can take what you're saying and challenge how it applies or doesn't apply to their own communities or their own experiences. And you also need that person who's going to be like, what does this matter? Like, what does this matter for actual people? Um, or else it's just like a fun thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, her, I think her life bears this out too. And another thought that comes to mind, she just passed away recently, I think last really? month. Wow. Um, but hers was a pioneering life. She is known as one of the early um, founders of womanism, mm. which is uh, Will Gaffney defines womanism as simply uh, black women's feminism. Mm-hmm. And what womanists were, uh, and I think you alluded to this earlier, what womanists were noticing about the work that they were doing or trying to do was, uh, I think in the early years, they found themselves as women um, learning from and doing the work of feminism. Mm. 
And what they realized was most of the experts in feminism are white women who bring their experience, their very mm. particular experience. And what we're going to do is what we're trying to do is different. And so carving out space to do something different and new. And she created something like because of her work, there's a new word out in the mm. world that didn't exist before mm. the craft that she engaged in. And so I think for us, uh, the idea of making something new is a really beautiful, again, I, I realize I can become a highfalutin theoretical thing, but what would it look like for us to focus on building something new? What is the new thing that we are making today or contributing to that we feel excited about? You know, mm -hmm. that's not going to last for, you know, forever, but that it's something very concrete. It's a manifestation of our creativity which is a manifestation of our resistance to the yeah. forces of status of the status quo. Yeah, I really like that. And just to kind of add to that too, from my understanding, like one of the one of the critiques that womanists women like people like Williams and like the forerunners of womanism had was that white feminists or white feminism was often concerned with issues pertaining to white women and did not do as good of job addressing issues that specifically affected women of color. Um, and so this thing that they created was very intersectional, right? And I, um, you know, to kind of like piggyback on what you were saying about we're building something new and something creative and like, yes, we're also, and like, let's also build something intersectional like they did. And that, you know, speaks to like the wide range of experiences that we have. Um, yeah, I just really appreciate it. I really appreciate that about like the forerunners of the womanist movement. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, because it's not just gender, it's race. And it's mm -hmm. not even just race, but it's also uh, all the different experiences of gender expression and sexual orientation and, and on and on you go. And it be quickly becomes this thing that I think this bugaboo that people are afraid of, I, you know, like a politics based on one's very specific identity. But the, the quest was, no, we're trying to recover the fullness and the complexity of who mm. we are. And I'm not just mm. one thing. Yeah. And you can't put me into the box of that one category or that one identity, right? And so, yeah, the intersectional piece seems so key. Yeah. And like, you know, your policy or your whatever, like it, it's going to impact different communities differently. And we should acknowledge that and not pretend that it has like a single monolithic unilateral impact on everybody because it doesn't. And so... Um, yeah, again, just acknowledging the complexity in our experiences and how we're impacted by all of the systems that we live in. Are there examples of ritual or um, resistance and common action that come to mind for you? I mean, this is tough for me, honestly. Maybe because I feel like I often default to like what does this matter if it's you know if it does not if it's not actually impacting real people but I, I also have blind spots too right so I'm I've been trying to think about like what could be helpful to ground me in this way and I am not sure I think similarly I think my my, my first thought is that it needs to be done in community and like all of these conversations need to be had in community and as diverse as possible but yeah well, I have yeah. an example that comes to mind um, for you or about you, mm. which is, um, uh, and I know that there's like, um, what do you call it? 
there's a uh, like fluctuation in how you engage in this work. But I remember um, being really struck by with admiration for the work that you were doing in your local school board mm. and the ways that you were saying to people in your city and um, to council members and and political leaders. It's really important. After school care is really important, not just for me as an individual. I can take care of my kids and my family. We have the means. But for us as a city to be providing this mm -hmm. for collectively mm -hmm. for everyone, um, that seemed like a profound act of resistance. Um, and going to those meetings um, and doing that work, I would imagine, took you out of, took you to places that you ordinarily would not have been. And so, <laughs> um, right. And so like, that's a great admiration for that. So I see you. And that's one example. I could think of others, but um, yeah, you're someone who's kind of modeled that for, for me. Oh, that's very generous of you, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, that's an interesting spin. I, I mean, I had not thought about it in those terms. So that's an interesting spin on it, too. But like, uh, like the idea of, I don't know, tangibly participating in a community in some way. Yeah, like right. in, in and of itself as and in, in a I mean in like a public facing not specifically religious you know what I yeah. mean like I, mm -hmm. I had not thought about that as like a in it in conversation with this piece and as like the as a resistance ritual but I like that I'm going to think about that for a while mm -hmm. yeah yeah appreciate yeah that. um so moving to the cone piece I thought so Cone, I read them in I read them in this order and I thought that Cone was so interesting. And initially I was like, oh, I feel like in some ways Niebuhr is like an example of what Williams is talking about in terms of the the divide between his ideas and his actions, right? But then I was like, no, actually I think Cone is also correctly acknowledging that even Niebuhr's thinking was mm. not was like that's good. also lacking, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and there are so many things in this piece that I appreciated, perhaps because I live in a, I mean, he talks about Niebuhr as a progressive intellectual, and I live in a city full of progressive intellectuals. And um, so much of his words resonated. Like, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about one, about how even among progressive intellectuals like Niebuhr, there is too little empathy regarding Black suffering in the white community. Like that really resonated. And also Niebuhr took no risks for Blacks. And that, God, um, it really resonates with my experience that like a lot of people in my community are progressive only until it costs them something. And so it's very easy to be progressive in theory and it's much harder to do it when it actually requires some kind of sacrifice on your part. And I'm sure I'm as guilty of this as anybody. So this is, you know, I'm not, excluding myself from this indictment. Um, so yeah, I just, I really appreciated that about this piece. Um, and then, you know, I was looking at the questions that you posed again in the forum here. And like, I'm curious specifically about your second one. Um, like how has Christian faith in America and your personal faith been robbed of its power because of the failure to acknowledge structural sin? I'm curious how you would respond to that. Mm. Oh, this is such a big one. We just talked about uh, this particular topic last month, um, but slavery, we, mm. we, would, we have done with our history is to say, of course, 
you know, uh, fallible human beings had blind spots and didn't mm. see the evils of slavery, mm-hmm. but they were amazing theologians. And so we can't just discard their contributions. Um, and there's probably, I don't know, like, I think that's a really hard statement to try and unpack because uh, at, at the theoretical level, it's uh, it's really hard to argue against. But um, we shouldn't let it preclude any critique and examination. And so um, to think about the ways, I love what you did, right? Because at first it's sort of trying to uh, bifurcate someone's knowledge and the way that they put their knowledge into action. And what you said was there's probably ways in which even his knowledge, his way of seeing the world and ways of uh, making sense and rationalizing what he was seeing uh, was a subject to some of the, the, the racialized imagination and a preference for comfort and, um, mm. and so, and ease. And, yeah. and so again, I think I like what you did and said this, you know, like none of us, or at least I'm not above this. And I would say that for myself, um, but thinking about what does, what, what do the theological rationalizations that we arrive at, to what extent do they reinforce our way of seeing the world, um, which, me, which is another way of saying, in what ways do they help us to rationalize or justify our habits and our privilege, and, um, and to what extent do they challenge and disrupt and that's really, that's a really hard thing to do. It's hard to question those things. I'm someone who has uh, particular views of the world. And so I, uh, so in terms of my academic work, I like to think about the history of race. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm realizing I need to be much more generous and open-handed about that particular topic and say, what do sociologists and political scientists have to teach me mm. when they're not just talking about race, but other issues to, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. provide an, an intersectional lens to the work that we're doing. And so I think there's kind of a, an intellectual narrow-mindedness that I can fall into that um, is good to be on guard against. Um, yeah, those are some things that come to mind. I also think it's important to remember that Niebuhr was in Detroit and it was in the early 20th century. And so Detroit transformed over the course of the 20th century. But there's ways in which he had the opportunity to do work in interracial um, community formation in ways that really disrupted the church after he left. Mm -hmm. And he was called upon to be a mediator because he was so deeply revered and respected as this pastor who had served for many years in that church. And he kind of dodged the issues. I mean, uh, Cohn talks about this in this piece. When he was called upon, um, Niebuhr kind of landed on the side of gradualism and -hmm. peacemaking. Mm -hmm. And so that, I guess, yeah, I think that's sort of the, that's the dilemma that many of us face is when we hear peacemaking, when we hear covering over the sins of others. That's really an attractive thing. It's what Jesus said to do. Mm-hmm. And to feel like you're exposing sin or calling things out uh, makes you feel like kind of like a curmudgeon. And yeah. that's a it's a hard identity to bear over an extended period of time. 
Um, and it can also kind of tip you over into being prideful. So uh, how to navigate that well is a real challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's part of the work before us. Yeah. It makes me think too about how like racial reconciliation is such like a nice, mm -hmm. people like, or like that term I think has been popular for so long yes. because it, it, it's, it implies that like everybody is at fault and needs to reconcile and like very handily covers over the massive power differentials that are involved and like the idea like ideas like reparations and ideas that like actually some some people some people need an apology and some people need like practical um pract like practical like absolution honestly so like um yeah that's that's a much harder that's a much harder thing to do so and it's, I mean, that's a popular term in some Christian circles, not not all Christian circles, but the ones where it is popular, there's a very clear goal in mind. And that clear goal is to for everyone to simply get along. Yeah. And so if you're going to hold on to your anger, or if you're going to mm -hmm. demand absolution or some kind of work of repair, then mm -hmm. you're, ob you're obviously, you know, holding on to things and, right. and you shouldn't be doing that. Right. And so it, it uh, yeah, it's a way of policing the work of resistance that I think people want to do in the face of injustice. Right. And it kind of, it goes back to this cheap grace that I can't mm. remember exactly who brought up in the discussion forum. Please forgive me. I think Rihanna um, did referencing yes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes, yes mm -hmm. exactly. And it's this idea that like, it's, it's, um, people want like forgiveness without like the work of like reflection and repentance and all of that. And like owning, owning all of it. They just want to be able to move on. And I think that's what, frankly, the church has been, the American church has been trying to do for decades, centuries, without actually doing like the hard work of, you know, real critical self-reflection and like meaningful repair. Right. So, And if Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer is right and costly grace is the way of Jesus, what implications um, flow from that for our lives? I think that's a really challenging question. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, we have only a few minutes left, but I'm curious, like, what do, what do these two pieces make you think about in terms of like the outward journey? What do they inspire you towards? Like, what do they make, what questions do they bring up for you? I wonder if both pieces point to our lack of patience for waiting and then mm. um, to bring this full circle back to Advent, to think mm. about how the spirit of the season and the wisdom of the season about waiting is a, an invitation and a challenge to embrace um, the gift of darkness. Mm. Um, what one of the things that Dolores Williams says is the wilderness was a place of refuge for mm. enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think lots of black theologians have been talking about the wisdom and beauty and um, the gift of darkness. And, uh, you know, I think uh, embracing some of the positive life-giving features of darkness. We've all experienced darkness as a positive force. Mm -hmm. um, when we have, a, you know, a splitting headache, we want to mm -hmm. go into a dark room. Mm -hmm. 
I don't want to experience this anymore. If, nowadays, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I think, oh, it's just, you know, like I'm, I'm really bummed. But I remember it was not too long ago when I would wake up in the middle of the night, look over at my, um, my alarm clock and see, oh, it's still early. I have like two more hours of sleep yes, and rejoice yes. in the darkness of that, yeah. of the night. Yeah. Um, you know, darkness is a place where your, uh, your blemishes don't have to show. I mean, so we could go down the list of ways that, um, that, uh, experiences of not seeing experiences of darkness have been a gift to us. And I think that's the real point of Advent is not simply, I know, no, and I think there's ways in which even the liturgical year is, uh, has been whitewashed. And so there is a sense in which uh, Epiphany, which is the season after Christmas and the coming of, of Jesus's light, um, there's beauty there, but I think there's also problematic, um, uh, aspects to all of that and so i realized the count the church calendar kind of pushes us in a different in a in a particular direction and i want to ask what does it mean to resist that what does it mean for us to resist the movement from darkness to light um as the way to life uh, but to mm. um to think of darkness as an end in and of itself and to embrace that mm. and perhaps to think many of us if in many areas of our life will have complete darkness in with respect to certain things. Uh, none of us knows exactly what happens after we die. Yeah. We're going to always be in the dark about that. Yeah. That's a gift to be embraced, you yeah. know? And so, yeah, so those are some thoughts that come to mind. Um, I, I wonder about leaning into that more fully. These pieces made me think about the need for critical self-reflection because I think a lot of people, like I think a lot of the feminists that Williams is referring to and probably Niebuhr um, probably had different understandings of themselves than the authors did. And just, it may, maybe this is like the therapist in me, but it just made me think about like the, the gap between how we think we, what we think we're like and what we're actually like. And how um, how important it is for, it, how important it is for us to examine that and constantly be engaging in like self reflection, um, because I think what we think we're doing, what we're actually doing, are often two different things. And we've seen that so many times over and over again in ministry, right? Like and in like Christian work. Um, so and it also highlights for me the need for a community to like help us see ourselves clearly also therapy the need for therapy to help us see ourselves clearly and just like um bring that gap between like the people we think we are and the people we are closer together so that we can live out the ideas that we that we believe that we have so um so to everybody as we wrap up this podcast session we wish for you um comfort in the ambiguity Comfort in the darkness, literal and physical. Sorry, comfort in the darkness, literal and metaphorical. <laughs> and, um, and opportunities to reflect on the people that we are and the people that we want to be in the world. Amen. That's a good word for Advent. <laughs> we hope your Christmas is meaningful, however you celebrate it. And we look forward to seeing and talking more with you in 2023.